If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On Easter Sunday 1722, the Dutch explorer Jacob Roggeban arrived at a remote Pacific island. He called it Easter Island, but the people who lived there called it Rapa Nui. Over the next 300 years, visitors to the island have marvelled at its astonishing stone monuments. But they've also been confounded by a seemingly dramatic collapse in the island's population. In the April issue of BBC History magazine, the archaeologist Kat Jarman explores the island's history and the debates that surround it. The magazine's editor, Rob Attar, spoke to Kat to find out more. So Kat, you're probably more familiar to our podcast listeners through your work on the Vikings. So I'd be interested to know how you came to also research the Rapa Nui, who are on the other side of the world and often in a different time period. Yeah, so this came about actually when I was uh, working on, on my PhD. I had 
always uh, been very interested in Rapa Nui from uh, I was a little child. So I grew up in Oslo in Norway and uh, one of the big museums there was the Viking Ship Museum and the Vikings became my, my sort of big, big career, uh, really. But next to it is uh, a museum called the Kontiki Museum, which is a museum of Tu Heyerdahl, who is uh, an explorer, an anthropologist who quite famously sailed uh, across the Pacific uh, on a raft called the Kontiki. Uh, but he was also involved in archaeological work on Rapa Nui, uh, starting in the 1950s, and then the, his foundation and the Kontiki Museum were involved in the 1980s as well. So I got an opportunity when I was in the middle of my PhD to take a, a different uh, project on and actually work with those collections. So work on the archaeological materials and uh, employ some of the new bioarchaeology methods of so looking at that that bone especially, um, to answer some questions. And, and there were still some outstanding questions about Rapa Nui, especially in terms of the environment and uh, and consumption of, of food and, and fish. So that's how I got into it uh, as a sort of side, uh, side hustle, as it were. And actually, one thing we should probably clarify fairly early on is what we're going to call the island, because I think most of our listeners might know it as Easter Island, and you so far have been calling it Rapa Nui. What do these two names symbolise about the island? Yeah, so Easter Island is is the um, the name that most of us will recognise. That was the name that was given to the island by the first European to, to go there. So that was a, a Dutch explorer called Jacob Brogevin who arrived there and um, is sort of said to have discovered it as, it, as it were, but really just the first European to to come across it. And that took place on Easter Sunday, 1722. And because this was a new unknown island to him, uh, Rogaven decided to name it Easter Island. Of course, he didn't know that the island already had a name, but they had been uh, had a, a population already. So the name Rapa Nui really is the name that the island had already by uh, given by the native population. Uh, it's also got a slightly different name, which uh, is Tepito Otehenua, which means the navel of the world, which I think is quite a nice name. But Rapa Nui, I think, really now is the ex- most commonly accepted name for it. And it is what the people on Rapa Nui themselves would use. Yes, exactly. So that th- this is their name for their island. So I think that's 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 probably the most appropriate for us to use as well. Yes, that's, that seems fair. Um, so how much do we know about the kind of pre-European settlement of Rapa Nui? Do we have a rough date for when people first arrived on the island? So this has been uh, quite a big subject of debate, actually. And now pretty much all researchers agree that the island was settled around 1200 uh, AD. And uh, it was settled from other parts of Polynesia. And we know that because of things like uh, archaeology and because of linguistic similarities, these, these people there speak Polynesian languages. And uh, it is, it's quite clear that that's where they came from. But the date of that has been controversial. And initially, in fact, in part, some of that early work of, of Tuhayadal's group suggested that people uh, arrived on the island much, much earlier, perhaps even as early as, as 400 AD. Um, but none of that, when we've sort of reconsidered the evidence, it doesn't really stack up. So 1200 seems to be the, uh, the accepted date. And has there been any debate about where the people came from 
have any people suggest they might have come from South America? Yeah, absolutely. So that uh, is one of those other big debates. Um, so even though all those links are, are quite clear with other Polynesian um, settlements, so quite a, a few people have tried to argue that South Americans must have, have come across uh, to settle the island. Um, again, Heidel was one of those who, who really wanted to prove this. And in part, part of his experiments was to show that it was possible. Uh, we do know it is possible to travel from South America uh, and, and across to, to Eastern Ireland. Um, and I think we should, should sort of point out here that actually the, the distance between the island and South America is, is about 2,000 miles. So it's a really, really vast distance. If you think about it, these are people who aren't, haven't got big, big sailing ships. They are really quite small rafts and boats. Um, so we know it's physically possible, but there is no actual evidence of it. Um, so the, the sort of anthropological and linguistic links are pointing to Polynesia. But there are some other strange clues, like quite recently, for example, we know that um, sweet potato is, is very commonly used. We now know that that actually comes from South America. So one of the questions is, how did it get there? We, we have evidence now that actually it arrived before Europeans. So did, did it seeds float across? So was there other sort of sources or, or was it the more likely reason that people actually came from South America to Polynesia? So things like that have been um, sort of questions, I suppose, around it. Um, we've now also tried to look at that with uh, genetic research. And again, it's a little bit confusing. So looking at modern DNA, for example, so looking at if you take DNA samples from the current population of the island, the vast majority do have Polynesian origins, but there are some studies that have shown a very small percentage of that South American um, DNA as well, which through various ways of looking at the statistics have been suggested actually took place before European contact. Um, to date, no ancient DNA has shown or proven conclusively any of that South American contact. So I was involved in one project, for example, where we looked at, uh, we took DNA samples of some uh, some human remains from a site called Anakena, and uh, we found purely Polynesian DNA there. But it was just a very small sample. Not much has been done yet. So I guess the jury is still open, uh, but there does seem to have been a contact in some way, either from South America to the island or possibly the other way. It could well have been the, the Rapa Nui population that went across to South America um, in that direction. I mean, because obviously these people were remarkable voyagers um, to have come to, uh, to Rapa Nui in the first place. I mean, this was a long time ago. I, I suppose we know why people would have chosen to make that voyage to Rapa Nui and settle there. Yeah, so we don't know exactly why, but it does seem to coincide around about 1200 with quite a big expansion eastwards from Polynesia. So you see quite a lot of other islands being settled around about the same time. And these are seafaring people. I mean, these are island people. So they are people who know how to navigate. They know how to survive for very long times at sea. They know how to fish. They know how to, uh, to to navigate using, you know, the stars and the winds and and all the natural elements. So so they are very very good at this. Um, so it seems like it's probably part of that sort of wider expansion out. Whether that's for uh, the usual reasons like population pressure or you know just search for new lands, we don't really know. But it seems to be a part of that. Presumably, people would have travelled further and further east and eventually come across this island. Now, I suppose one of the things, or perhaps the thing that Rapa Nui is best known for around the world, 
is the remarkable Moe statues that, that dot the island. And it would be great if we could speak a little bit about those. And first of all, for anyone who, who hasn't seen a, a photo of them, could you briefly describe what exactly they are? Yeah, so these Moe are these very large human figures. And uh, yeah, so they range in size quite a lot, from the smallest ones about two meters up to about 10 meters. And some of them uh, are extraordinarily big and weigh up to 70 metric tons, a few possibly even more than that. So they're really vast. And they've got these very large giant heads and upper bodies. And some of them stand alone, others stand on big platforms. They all, and you might actually not appreciate, even if you've seen photos of them, you might not appreciate that actually they all face inwards. So they all have their backs to the sea facing inland on this island. So they're quite spectacular, just, you know, the, the sort of sheer art of them. Um, but also in thinking about how they're actually created. And so that's been one of those other big debates, you know, how could they? And, and some of those earliest explorers who, who encountered the island just thought surely these primitive seeming natives couldn't have carried out the sort of great feats of art, uh, which again is another reason why some thought that other people's input, people from South America, must have uh, taken part in it. And so what what do we now know about their construction? Is Are they like Stonehenge? It's another subject we've had on the podcast recently. Are there just still huge mysteries about the construction? Or have we managed to work out any of the, the tricks or techniques they used? Yeah, I mean, pretty much uh, understand it now, I think. Uh, it's not that much uh, of a mystery anymore, even though people like at least headlines online that <laughs> like to make it out of some great big mystery. So they are all carved of, of the local stones, obviously, and most of them from uh, a stone called volcanic tuff, which is a very porous stone, and it means it's actually quite relatively easy to carve so although they they look very impressive it's not you know you don't need um, iron or anything like that you can carve them fairly easily and the the stone is there's a quite a lot of it uh, but it does come from these big uh, quarries high up on the island so so Rapanui is a volcanic island it's got several volcanoes so it's quite steep and the best quarries are, are sort of right at, at the top and uh, the main statue quarry is called Rano Raku and you really have to move them quite a long distance from there so I think that, in its way, uh, how the statues were moved has been the, the greatest mystery. A bit like Stonehenge, you know, we were still debating how actually did they move uh, those uh, those big stones. But in terms of Rapanui and those statues, uh, we now pretty much know that they were, well, as the islanders say, they were actually walked. They walked themselves down the hill, which sounds a, a, a bit of a strange way of putting it. But rather than early theories that they would be rolled on, on logs or anything like that, or on sledges, they were actually walked. Because when you look at the statue constructions, it's, it's very clever. They're, they're the, the sort of when they're made up in the quarry, they are made a little bit like bowling pins uh, with their bases, which means that you can you can rock them side by side, and by doing that, the statues themselves can move. So all it takes really is some very carefully placed ropes and a couple of teams of people either side pulling at it, and that creates a sort of rocking motion, meaning that the statues can basically walk down the hill. And there's even an, a native word for it. It's called neke neke, which means moving forwards so without legs, basically, which is what they do. And um, there's also a song to accompany it. 
And this is very effective. You don't need uh, rollers, you don't need anything like that. The statues can then move down the hill. They then have another process where they refinish them at the end so they can stand on these platforms. Some of them have a hat that's put uh, on top of their heads uh, afterwards as well, which again, we've got some evidence now of platforms being used and ramps to roll them up. So I think we've got that quite clear. It's a, it's a very quite straightforward way of moving the statues. But but still, it does sound like, like quite a lot of work. So I suppose the other quest, obvious question is, they are remarkable constructions, but why did these people do it when so many other people didn't do similar things? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is one of the things that we can't quite answer. But I think we need to look into what they are and how they're being used. And these have got very important religious and ceremonial functions. Uh, we know that the Rapanui actually consider them as the embodiment of their ancestors. So they're not just stone statues or artworks, but they are actually representative. So these are the ancestors. So each statue is essentially a person who used to live on, on the island. So in that sense, that they're, they're actually real. And the statues are also used for, for burials, the statue platforms around them that are burials, there are various ceremonial um, rituals taking place there. And they are sort of community gathering points, I suppose. So I think our understanding really, I mean, we, we do know from the earliest ethnographic uh, um, and European accounts of, of interviewing uh, the people of Rapa Nui, that the, the island was divided into different, what we, we would know as sort of chiefdoms or something like that, different socio-political groups. And the statues do seem to, to sort of relate to different areas. So they would have had some kind of function like that, perhaps within the clan, if these are the ancestors. Um, and obviously they're considered as sort of religious deities in a way uh, as well. And so that clearly seems to be very important. There's other theories that the locations represent important resources. So if, if we think about the fact that they are pointing inwards, they're pointing, they're sort of protecting from the sea and, and sort of looking in and protecting the island's resources. That's probably really important as well. And some of them may be marking things like springs, freshwater springs, for example. So it seems like whatever the reasons were, it was extremely important culturally and socially and possibly also politically and religiously so so that i think is probably the answer to why there's so many of them um, and why they are essentially spread over the whole island still to come on the history extra podcast we actually don't know how many people lived there in 1722. Uh, one of the earliest accounts suggests about 3,000, but actually those European explorers just came across for a, you know, a day or two and had no way of actually counting. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. 
Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. I suppose the other big mystery or apparent mystery that people think of when they think of uh, Rapanui is this population decline. So from... European contact in 1722, there was a precipitous fall in the number of people living on the island. And there have been quite a few theories put forward as to, to why this happened. What were the traditional kind of explanations for the numbers of people falling? Yeah, so I think the population decline on Easter Island or Rapa Nui uh, really has been one of the big issues and one of the big things that have caused this idea of a big mystery. Uh, and, and, you know, but actually we do know what's happened. We know very well what's happened and it, it is really not a, a nice story at all. But unfortunately, over the years, and especially quite recently, the last sort of 30 years or so, um, and a kind of alternative hypothesis of what happened has, has come about. And this is what's known as the collapse theory, which which was especially popularized by Jared Diamond in his book by the same name, Collapse. And in that book, Jared Diamond blames the native population for essentially decimating itself and for causing a complete population decline because of uh, essentially ruining the island's environment. And if you if you look at a picture of, of Rapa Nui today, you'll see it's a pretty barren island. It's It looks like a really difficult uh, place to live. And uh, and in fact, that is true, although a lot of that is actually uh, very modern 20th century sheep grazing that's caused the landscape that you see today. Um, but this idea that there was once a thriving population there that somehow disappeared um, by the time the Europeans arrived um, is one of these, these sort of uh, supposed mysteries. The other idea that's related to that is this uh, ecological collapse. So that's the idea that the island once uh, had a really, really good flora, lots of animals and lots of plants, uh, but that that was all uh, destroyed. We do know that some of that's true. So we know that there certainly were a lot of trees there. There were giant big palm trees uh, called a jubea plant. We've got pollen records and things like that to, to know that's the case, but but those trees are no longer there now. And uh, so that's one of the sort of ecocide uh, hypotheses that claims is that the islanders cut the trees down um, in part to build the statues. This is thinking that the rollers were, were needed, the logs were needed to do that. Um, and so that was one part. 
Yeah. So, and also because the island is quite poor in in, in animals, um, it's only, they've only really got chickens uh, and rats, and the soils are very difficult to grow. So the idea was that there was this thriving population, lots of great uh, plants and animals, and then somehow they vanished. Coupled with that was various other theories of civil war taking place. So some early accounts, some um, ethnographic accounts suggesting that there'd been a great civil war in the 1650s that led to the decimation of, of the entire population. There's also early reports of cannibalism. So what Jared Diamond did was essentially popularize a lot of other theories about this and, and blaming uh, that population that had once been much greater um, for completely... Um, essentially just carrying out what he called ecocide, so ecological suicide. So you don't obviously don't hold with this collapse theory. So what do you put the reasons for, for, for the decline in population? I mean, how much does it actually owe to the impact of European um, visitors and incursions also from South America? Yeah, so I think the key here is that before European contract, we have no evidence at all of population decline. And that's what that whole ecocide uh, debate is about. Was we actually don't know how many people lived there in 1722. Uh, one of the earliest accounts suggests about 3,000, but actually those European explorers just came across for a you know a day or two and had no way of actually counting. Uh, it's been suggested that in its heyday, it could have supported up to 15,000 people, but I think that's probably unlikely. Um, but then somehow, um, within a few hundred years, the population completely disappears. And what is clear now is that that did not happen before the Europeans arrived. It happened afterwards and, and because of it. So quite soon after that first uh, Dutch uh, expedition, lots of other Europeans came as well. Some of them relatively peaceful, uh, fishermen and so on. But actually, very quickly, people were taken off as slaves and uh, the populations were quite badly abused. There was a, a lot of violence uh, taking place as well. And then later on, we start having slave raids on a really massive scale, especially from Peru. So vast numbers of people are taken off the island. Eventually, there's a, there's a big international outcry and some people are, are repatriated. But with them, when they are sent back to Rapa Nui, they also take with them uh, diseases like smallpox. And for a small island with a small population where they haven't had that before, that has disastrous um, impacts. So what that leads to is in 1877, no more than 111 of the native Rapa Nui population are left on the island from several thousands. And this really is what happens to the Rapa Nui. It's, it's not uh, a sort of environmental disaster. It's, it's a, a European and South American disaster. And then shortly after that, the island was colonised by, by Chile. What impact did colonisation have on, on the surviving Rapa Nui? How, how did the Chileans uh, run the island? Yeah, so really, uh, the island was very much taken from the native population. So this tiny, tiny population of only just over 100 people were um, forced to, to live in just one small area. And uh, a lot of the island was rented out for things like sheep farming, where the sheep obviously having a very detrimental uh, effect. So up until... Uh, 
quite late in the 20th century, the natives uh, really had no control over their own island. Uh, and although the population could grow to a much more healthy size, um, this was really quite quite a sad story um, of what happened. And especially then having the blame uh, for it themselves as well, uh, especially as a sort of extra added insult to injury. And, and I suppose one thing that's different about um, the Rapa Nui and other kind of mysteries or supposed mysteries from history, such as Stonehenge or ancient Egypt, because it, it's not that long ago and there still are Rapa Nui people living on the island. So, I mean, how much are we able to learn about their early history from the inhabitants and perhaps the oral histories they retain? So, unfortunately, not very much. Now, they did actually have a writing system uh, as well, the Rongo Rongo writing system, but that didn't survive the uh, early Christian missionaries. So, quite soon after the island's uh, encounters with the Europeans, uh, a lot of missionaries came to the island as well and relatively quickly managed to successfully Christianize the island. And with that, a lot of that original knowledge um, disappeared. So, certainly, any knowledge of how to to read or understand the writing system. The, the tablets were found, so we've got quite a lot of them, but we haven't been able to decipher it. So we don't have that. And the other problem is that actually with those early sleigh raids, a lot of the, the sort of real original population, as it were, were taken off the island. Many of those that were brought home again uh, were actually also not originally from Rapa Nui. There was a there was a, actually a policy or com- quite common practice when people were brought back from South America and repatriated to to just take any Polynesian islanders and taking them back. Some of that was uh, deliberate in order to to create more conflict and and sort of confusion back home. But one of the big problems was that a lot of the leaders, uh, and so a lot of the sort of cultural and religious leaders were taken off uh, or killed. Um, and so a lot of that sort of cultural uh, systems and that cultural memory just completely disappeared. So even when we start having the first scientific uh, investigations on the islands, so starting really in the 20, early 20th century, we don't have that much of the original population left. So it already been lost. So even though you have people on there now who are descendants of that original Rapa Nui population, the cultural memories and the cultural history is just no longer there, which is part of why it is a, such a sad story. So you talked earlier about some of your work on the kind of diet of the Rapa Nui people. What, what were you able to discover through that research? Yeah, so one of the things I wanted to look at was on fish consumption, because obviously we're here on an island in the middle of nowhere, but there were all these reports and accounts, including some of those by by Jared Diamond, suggesting that they weren't actually eating a lot of fish, which seemed really surprising because there's not a lot else to eat, really. I mean, we've got sort of various plants like taro and sweet potato being planted, and um, but the island doesn't have a great sort of biodiversity and there doesn't seem to be quite so many fish so there was all these accounts saying these islanders had turned their back on the sea it was again another idea palm trees were cut down they couldn't make canoes and so they couldn't go out and fish but nobody had really done that much real research on it so one of the things i wanted to look at was using bioarchaeology so using isotope analysis which is a way that we can pick out the diet from the actual human remains themselves. And I also, with my, my colleagues, wanted to look at some of the, the idea that they didn't really know how to use their resources, how to survive in a different climate. So looking at the bone, we actually found that they did eat a lot of fish. So up to about 50% of the diets came from the sea, which um, 
in one way didn't surprise us at all, but it did seem to be contrary to all those other suggestions. But of course, we have things like fish hooks, uh, fish nets surviving in the archaeological record, so they definitely did fish. But we could prove that they that was a significant part of the diet. But we also looked at some of the soils and the way they were planting, um, because the sort of idea behind the ecocide debate, the idea that they didn't look after the environment, was that they, you know, they actually. Um, didn't have enough food, so it led to starvation and so on. But we were able to show you that a very specific type of planting, they use these planting enclosures called manawai, which are stone enclosures with things like lithic mulch. So you put stones on the top to sort of keep the soils more stable. Um, we were able to show that in those enclosures, the soils were so much better than outside. So actually, you had people here who know how to manipulate the soil. They used fertilizers, um, things like uh, well, chicken poo and seabird guano or seabird poo to actually create better fertilized soils. So far from being this sort of um, completely unknowledgeable population that turns their back on the sea, they were eating fish and they were also manipulating their, um, their environment, their landscapes in order to be able to very successfully grow plants. Now, as, as we said at the start, you've your other main speciality is is the Vikings, of course. Do you see any parallels between, between these two groups of people? I realise, as I said, they are so far apart from each other in many ways, but are there any similarities between the two? Yeah, I've been asked that before, actually. I think it is a really interesting question. They're both very maritime communities. So they are um, both populations that know how to use and exploit the sea. And I think that's a really key point. So as we talked about earlier on, the fact that they could make it there to this island in the first place is really important. So they knew how to make boats. They knew how to make suitable boats. So we mentioned briefly this this idea of there being trees there originally. So there were these big palm trees, um, which obviously are very suitable to making canoes news but when those trees disappear because they did disappear um not because people were callously cutting them down but because of things like invasive species rats gnawing the, the palm trees um but that meant that there were no big palm trees to make boats so they might use different materials or other forms of wood to make rafts and other types of boats so again it's sort of it's being able to know how you use the sea and how you survive there they also seem to be very well adapted to it which i think is something we see with with the vikings as well and if we if we think of the Vikings away from this whole raiding, pillaging idea, the Vikings are also very, very good at adapting to whatever circumstances they needed. So they go to Iceland, they go to Greenland, these really quite harsh territories. They go, you know, they even make it into North America, they go down to the Mediterranean, down the eastern Russian rivers, down to the Black Sea. Um, so they could kind of really adapt to different climates and, and in how they live there. And I think that's what we should think of the Polynesians as well, actually some really quite sophisticated seafarers, explorers, people who can adapt to really quite a tricky island environment. And those, I think, are quite similar qualities. That was Kat Jarman. Her article on Rapa Nui is in the April issue of BBC History magazine which is on sale now and also contains features on Napoleon, Mary Seacole, Britain in 1942 and much more. Kat's latest book, River Kings, The Vikings from Scandinavia to the Silk Road, was published by William Collins in 2021. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Newitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.
a collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.